Hello and welcome to No Wax Needed, an Israeli podcast about martial arts. This is episode 32, the second part of our interview with Marin Spivak. This time we talk about the idea of disciples in Chinese uh, martial arts and also about the connection between Chinese culture and Chinese martial arts. Uh, okay, I, I want to ask a question that uh, a lot of the time you use or the word disciple or student or maybe in this interview and other, could you maybe give a few words about the difference between a disciple and a student and what is the, the uh, responsibilities of a disciple or a teacher to his disciples and maybe how many disciples each, uh, each teacher can have or... Okay. Okay, so th- it's a good question because this is also a very misunderstood term, okay? And, and part of that comes from English. You know, people talk about so-and-so is a disciple of a particular, particular teacher. And what is the first thing that comes to mind in English? Well, Jesus and his disciples, right? People think it's some kind of uh, r- religious or spiritual connotation. Well, of course, it is not. It's just that we don't have a good word for it. Uh, there's no really good translation for this idea of disciple, and so disciple isn't really the real, isn't the right word. In Chinese, it's called tudi, okay? And really, if we pick a better translation, we would choose the word apprentice, okay? So if, if it was like the year 1850, and you wanted to learn to make furniture, you know, cabinets, beds, all that kind of stuff, you wanted to become a woodworker and, and learn furniture making, which we call cabinetry over here in English, if you wanted to learn that, I mean, you're not just going to go to school for it. They didn't necessarily have a school for it. You're going to go uh, five blocks away, and there's going to be some master cabinet maker who has a, a wood shop where they make furniture, and they're master. They know everything. And you're going to go to that person, and you, maybe, you're gonna, maybe your dad or your mom is going to bring you over there, and they're going to say, please accept my, my boy here as an apprentice. He wants to become an apprentice in woodworking, right? And maybe maybe your family is poor, and they say if we can get if we can get you know Master Yosef over there to take him as an apprentice in woodworking, uh, then he'll have a good life, right? He'll build a, a trade, he'll be able to support himself and make money, and he'll do well, right? So back in the old days, I mean, this is in the old days, this is called going into the trades here in the United States, and so you would become an apprentice to that master woodworker. And in the beginning, they would have you sweeping the shop floor and they'd call you idiot, right? They'd say, oh, hey, get that stupid kid over here to clean up the mess. And you wouldn't learn anything. They'll put you to work. Because maybe even in this case, you know, it's, it's not a school. Your father's not paying them to teach you, right? They just said, please teach them. Well, what are they going to do? Well, you're going to become my apprentice. And that, that means you're going to do everything I tell you, right? You want to learn? You're going to learn the workings of the entire shop. And you'll start at the bottom. Clean the floors. Clean the, 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 the shop tables. Take out the trash. Clean the tools. Sharpen the tools. All that kind of stuff. And then as the years go by, well, they start teaching you skills. You start working on things. And the, the master teaches you. And, you know, maybe after 10 years, you're what they call a journeyman. In, in English, they would say journeyman or a master level woodworker. And you can open up your own shop, right? And then you could take on apprentices and teach them the trade, teach them the craft. That is probably the closest term that really relates to, to what it is. However, the Chinese, the paradigm of the disciple, quote unquote disciple or tudi, uh, the paradigm is, is, is a bit different and, and maybe a bit further. Although I would wager that in the old days, you know, even in the West, it went a bit further. But, but in China, the idea is, and, and this relates, I think, especially to the Chinese situation where 
it, it, it historical situation where in the past, I mean, the, the poverty was just unbelievable. You know, if you if you were born in the countryside to maybe a farming family and things didn't go well, I mean, you just have nothing and there's no social safety net. And, you know, if you're poor, if you're poor and no food and no trade, I mean, you die. It's like back in, in the past. Um, and it even kind of persists into today with the sort of sexism that exists in China. I mean, if you were a family and if you had a lot of kids, if you had daughters, uh, uh, right, they, they basically they favored sons because, you know, the sons would be like, that's muscle, that's work, right? Mm -hmm. And if you were mm -hmm. a farming family and you had sons, well, those sons would go out and work the fields, but, you know, too many daughters and, and that's going to be a burden for you because, you know, maybe those daughters get into trouble and maybe they have babies and how many babies you have in your family, you have to feed them all, right? So what they would do is, you know um, – they try to marry those daughters off so somebody else would feed them, right? Because they just couldn't handle that many kids. They didn't have birth control or whatever. So um, they try to marry those daughters off. And it's 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 kind of like that. Um, if you have kids, if you're poor and you have kids and you can't feed them, what do you do, right? I mean, you don't want them to die, but you can't feed them. So in some cases, you know, you want them to have a good life and you can't feed them. You don't have the means to feed them. You're going to find a trade for them. You know, whatever the trade is, in this case, it happens to be martial arts. Martial arts back then was a trade, right? You could be employed by it, but you could. it was also important that you could protect yourself and your family with it. Uh, in some cases, it could help you go into the military or become a government official. Mm. But regardless, your your mother or your father could, could take you to your local, you know, Southern Mantis or, you know, or whatever martial arts it was, uh, uh, master who lived in your village, right? Or even a family relative, right? If your own family does it. But if it wasn't in your own family, they could take you to that master and say, please take my child as an apprentice. And then the same things would apply as to the woodworking apprentice, except it goes further. So in this case, it's not just take my child as, as an apprentice. It's like, take my child. Hmm. <laughs> I, can't, I can't feed my child. You know, take my child, this child now belongs to you. So that's the old style to the is they take the kid and give the kid to to that person, whether it's martial arts or any other pursuit, because this idea of the 2D is not is not specific to martial arts. So I mean I you know, I have a friend over there who's a doctor of Chinese medicine. When he was talking to me about his training time when when he when he was young, that's what it was. I mean his teacher was much older than him and he became a 2D to that teacher and and basically was just the teacher just owned him he was the, the son of the teacher um and and that's and that's in medicine it's this exact same thing so in Gulf, it's no different so they would give you to somebody as basically a servant and being that person's servant you get to be their apprentice you serve them for a number of years they teach you that's the trade right you act like their son you take care of them you take care of their family you do everything they want you to do and in return over the years they will treat you like a son. They will teach you their art, their special art, right? And when you are of age, when you are good enough, well, then you are a person who carries on their lineage, their specific art, and maybe you could teach it later. But so that's sort of the, the, the old antiquated version. You'd be like a servant. You'd be a part of their family. You know, it's, it's a very close relationship and, and secretive even. So a Tudi, what an apprentice would learn, I mean, the public would never see. Um, because many of these Chinese martial arts were sort of held by clans. They were not shared in public with the outside at all. Maybe your other, the other 
uh, Tudi, the other apprentices of that teacher, are your sworn Kung Fu brothers where you all know a particular set of secret arts and you're sworn to never reveal it to anybody else. It's, it's not uncommon at all. In modern China, there's like a possibility, like if, if, if I can understand that you had a few teachers and you there's a situation, for example, that in one school you have people that are uh, disciples or apprentices and people just come to practice or it's necessarily everybody has to be an apprentice or a... So modern times is quite a bit different, okay? Some of the old history still uh, uh, still exists, but of course it's very different. Many martial arts will be taught publicly now, okay? So back in the day when we're talking about the history of the, of the disciple-apprentice relationship, back in the old days, I mean, a lot of these martial arts weren't taught publicly at all. So Chen, Taiji Chen, in the year, you know, in, in, in the year like 1910, I mean, you would never have seen it. It would have been held by the family, And you would never have seen it outside the family. They wouldn't have taught it public, publicly at all. I mean, maybe in very rare cases you would. These days, Chen Taiji Chen really didn't become really public until 1928, okay, when Chen Fa Ke took it to Beijing. And then he started teaching publicly. Uh, but even then, he had disciples and students, I think. Okay, I can't say that definitively. I know he had disciples, but he probably had students that were not disciples. That certainly is the way it is today. I would say that today, most in the world of Taiji Chuan, other arts I can't speak of specifically, but in Taiji Chuan, I would say most of it is public students now. It first went public really maybe 1928, and then uh, you know, semi-public through the, up to the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, you have these difficult political times, cultural revolution, and uh, World War II, and, you know, starvation, and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you know, you have the cultural re revolution, which basically made it, like, illegal to, to practice Kung Fu. It was sort of, uh, it was viewed as uh, uh, sort of feudal, right? One of these, like, yeah. these mm -hmm. old things that you're, that the communists do not want, you know, they don't want to go back to feudal China. They're trying to go to a new Marxist China that liberates everybody from, you know, a, a class oppression, right? And they considered things like Taiji Chuan and Chinese opera and all these other old uh, traditions to be things that should be done away with because they're politically incorrect. Um, so they, it, it was, you now people did practice it, and but it was just generally like, you know, you're at risk by, by being involved in it. You could mm -hmm. be branded politically undesirable and then you're going to have problems. But then sometime, wh whatever year it was, 70, 1978 or 1980, I can't remember what year, uh, Mao Zedong, the leader of China, um, is sick. Um, and he, at least the story goes, I may be wrong on this. You know, someone out there will tell me I'm an idiot for saying it and they're probably right. Mao Zedong's health was not good. And he actually found, I believe, someone named Gu Liuxing who practiced a number of different styles of Taiji and had some government connections. And they brought Gu Xian in to teach Mao Zedong Taiji because they thought this would be good for your health, you know, to, to, to save dear leader's health, right? So yeah. uh, they taught him some Taiji and I guess Mao Zedong liked it, right? And then he came out in public and said, Taiji Hall, you know, Taiji's good. Practicing Kung Fu is good. And then all of a sudden it was legal. And then everybody could practice Kung Fu. And then it started to have a resurgence. And then after the 1980s, it sort of became popular and it was promoted by the government. And they started to have tournaments and performances and all this kind of stuff. Um, and they had the what we know as the Beijing Wushu team and all that, which is performance Wushu, sort of like the Olympics, you know. Um, and it had a big resurgence and it became very public. And, and, and certain names within Chen Taiji Chen, as well as other arts, became promoted by the government as sort of commercially viable uh, enterprises. 
Okay, now that's why we have like Shaolin Temple. Everybody knows about Shaolin Temple, right? And and Wudang Temple and these these old antique temples that they they have these sort of mystique around them as as having had martial arts. And now they're touring the world with their martial artists slash dancers, right? They're doing performances and all this kind of stuff with their extreme feats of strength and all this. And the truth is most of those those Shaolin monks and everything, they're not original, they're not monks at all. They're not Shaolin at all. Most of them are hired from Beijing Wushu University. You know, Beijing's, oh. Beijing, Beijing Sports University teaches all this uh, sports, you know, performance, athletics, Wushu, you know, martial arts, which is like acrobatics and performance. Yeah. And, uh, and so they hire a bunch of these sort of professors or graduates from that program to come be the staff at Shaolin Temple and dress up as monks and, you know, learn a couple sutras they can recite, you know, um, and pose as monks. But they're not monks at all. They're, they're, that's why they have so much, so much, there's a lot of scandal related to Shaolin because the guys who aren't monks are getting into a lot of trouble. But uh, yeah. it's, it's a commercial enterprise. Shaolin became a commercial enterprise because the government realized, hey, you know, the tourists have a very, foreign tourists have a very big interest in Shaolin because of all the mythology and the stories. So if we can staff this with people, you know, we can charge money, you know, tickets and make a lot of money. And and they have, they've been very successful. I mean, it's, a, it has to be a billion dollar. It's, it's a huge industry. And, and so that's kind of like, you know, they, the, the, the Chinese government realized that Kung Fu, Chinese Kung Fu and Wushu is like, that's a cash cow and they can make a lot of money with that. And they promoted certain teachers and they had tournaments. And now you have these famous teachers who are touring the globe and giving workshops and all this kind of stuff. Um, so as a result, there's, there's a number of those teachers uh, who have many, many students, thousands and thousands of students, hundreds of thousands of students the world over. Uh, do they take disciples? Well, things have changed. Uh, so, so China, of course, you know, after Deng Xiaoping, who's one of the leaders who sort of steered China towards its more a free market economy um, and said, you know, to get rich is, is, is glorious. Yeah. After he guided China in that direction, I mean, of course, the free market opened and everybody wants to get rich. And that includes... Taiji teachers, uh, any kind of Gongfu teacher, I mean, the more students, the better, right? You get more people paying and you're making money and you have a nice car and, and there you go. Your wife's happy, right? So hmm. that's the truth. And uh, so a lot of these teachers now, they'll take as many students as, as possible. Um, and in some cases, they'll take a ton of public students and then maybe they'll have, you know, a few actual disciples who learn the real stuff, right? The public students are sort of like the tourists, the visitors, uh, the people who don't really want to work that hard, but they, you know, they'll do the performance stuff, the health stuff, the stuff that looks good and it's fun. It's a fun activity to do with your friends. Um, and then they'll have a few people who maybe become disciples and they want to learn actual martial arts stuff, right? But then, and this is more common, is you'll have teachers who teach just about anybody. They'll teach hundreds, you know, thousands of public students with no problem, no requirements. And then they'll, in fact, uh, Take advantage of the situation and just take disciples, almost anybody, if you can pay the money. And so the discipleship has become more of a money game, especially for the very famous teachers. If, if the, the higher, the bigger your reputation is, well, the more money it costs to become a disciple, right? And the price is sort of going up and up and up. So, you know, literally some of these people, yeah, you can become my disciple, but, you know, the cost for being a disciple is $10,000 or $20,000. That's just right. sad. Uh, wow. Right. And, and I mean, you know, you have in some cases you have some of these teachers who travel, they travel in a motorcade of limousines in China, you know, they travel in a motorcade of limousines. They have, you know, 14 houses, they're billionaires wow. or whatever it is. Um, they, 
they can count among their disciples. Maybe they have some political officials that are their disciples. They have government connections, right? Uh, maybe other ones, they'll have movie stars and entrepreneurs, people like Jack Ma, right? Who, who's the founder of Alibaba. You know, I think he became disciple of one of these big name guys. Who knows how much he paid, right? Maybe you want to become a disciple of this teacher. You got to buy him a Mercedes. Wow. Wow. You know, or buy him a house. And, and so they'll, right now, the situation is, in a lot of situations, it's like, yeah, you can become a disciple if you have the bucks to do it. And, and, and the thing is, um, why do people do this? Because in Chinese society, like I was talking about Guanxi, um, politics, social leverage, okay, power in society is very much dependent on Guanxi and what they call diwei, which means position, okay? So Guanxi and diwei are both very, very important. So relationship and position, meaning relationship, who are you networked to? Who are you connected with? Who do you know? Like in Hollywood here in the U.S., you want to be a, a, a you know movie star? Well, who do you know, right? Uh, and, and I mean, at the risk of being offensive, it used to be, who do you know, who do you blow? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's the truth, right? Now all that all of that stuff came out in the, in the U.S. Now it's like, no, no, we don't do that anymore. Now it's just who you know. Well, I'm sh- we'll see how that goes. But you know, it, it, it's it's like, who do you know in China? You want to get anywhere in business? Who do you know, right? And it, and and if you don't know me, if you're trying to make a deal with me and you don't, you know, you should know somebody that I know if you want to establish some guanxi with me. If you don't know anybody that I know, if we don't have any guanxi, you're going to have to give me something. You're going to have to pay me or give me a great gift or do something really great for me, bribe me somehow. Then we're going to have guanxi. You've, once you've established how important I am to you, by giving me something or doing something for me, then we'll have some guanxi. And then maybe I'll care about you a little bit. You'll be a little bit important since you did something for me. It's, you know, a game of favors, okay? So in the world of kung fu, it just so happens that, you know, if you're super famous as a teacher of tai chi chuan, you travel in a motorcade of limousines, and you have among your disciples government officials, you're an important person. And if I can be a disciple of you, I will, by extension, become important, right? And then it's like if I'm a disciple of this person, that actually will affect how I do business. doesn't even relate to martial arts, but it's like if I want to go over here and do business, you know, there's a connection between the network of martial arts and the network of business. If I'm a disciple of somebody very famous, well, now I have some social diway. I have some social clout in business, Okay, so people will, will take those discipleships for business. You know, maybe they can make money with Kung Fu or not even with Kung Fu, just with the connection. That connection itself has power and leverage. So you'll have a lot of people who are just buying discipleships. Um, and a lot of those teachers, that's fine, no problem. They'll just sell out because they're getting rich. And that's just the way the world is right now. So so that's the sort of current situation. Now, I mean, I'm, that's not something I'm happy about, but that's just the way it is. However, that said, I'm going to, finish answering your question here and say that the true traditional uh, framework for being a disciple and the way that I did it doesn't work that way at all, okay? So that basically you become a disciple of a teacher, generally the way it works is, yeah, you have to you have to give some money. You're sort of donating some money, which is you, that's your expressing to that teacher how valuable they are to you. Putting some money on the table saying, I'm willing to sacrifice this much because I so want to be your disciple and learn your art. So you're going to put some money on the table. Um, you're going to, depending, every teacher is going to be different, but you're going to do the equivalent of like taking some oaths, making some promises, right? 
Um, it's like an honor system, but you know, normally, generally speaking, the tradition in China in the old days was that if you're a disciple of one person, that's it. You're a disciple for life. So if you become a disciple of that person, you don't go study with somebody else. You're committing yourself to that person. You're becoming the adopted son of that person. You can't adopt a second, you know, parent, right? It's like that. That's your one. Uh, uh, what would that be? Guardian, right? Your, you know, in, in English, Godfather or whatever. Yeah. You're becoming a son of that person. You don't get to do that again. It's one time and it's forever. Okay. And and then on top of that, you know, you're going to do what they tell you to do. They tell you to jump off a cliff. You jump off a cliff. They tell you to practice in, until you can't walk. You practice until you can't walk. They tell you to, you know, do this move 7,050, you know, 7,500 35 times, you do it 7,535 times until you have no skin left on your hands. That's the agreement, right? The agreement is that whatever they tell you to do, you do it. Mm -hmm. And then the implicit agreement, and, and also you'll serve them, you know, whatever they want you to do for them, you'll do it, okay? They want to control your life, they'll do it, and you'll accept wow. it. And then, and, and, and this is something for the English-speaking audience, for the Westerners, most people do not understand this. I mean, I can explain it right here to you and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I understand. I get it. But they don't get it. In Chinese society, it's like, remember, we have a network of guanxi. So it's like, if you are my shifu, right? You're my master. You probably know my mom and dad and you know other people that I know. And if I don't do well with you, the shame comes back to me through, through a roundabout route. Everybody knows it. You know what I mean? It's like, there's no secrets. It's like, you're, you're, you're in this network of the culture. Sure, things go wrong. It's not absolute. I mean, you can always run away, but it's like, it's not so easy. You're not just going to say, no, I don't, you know, uh, Shrifu told me to do this move 500 times and you know what? I don't feel like it. No, it's not that easy. It doesn't work like that, you know? And also it's China, you know, maybe Shrifu told you to do this and you said, no, it just beats the crap out of you. Who knows where it goes? Everybody's different. So, so it's on one hand, you know, you're serving them, you're doing everything they want, but there's also this agreement that's basically the simple equation if I'm just, if you're my teacher and I'm just a student, okay, that means I can learn from you and then I can go out into the world and I can demonstrate horrible kung fu. I can be terrible, all right? I'm just the most useless, horrible student. I go out there and say, look at my kung fu. And everybody looks and says, oh my God, that's the worst thing I've ever seen, okay? <laughs> you're, you're horrible. You suck. You're terrible. You go out there and you're just terrible. And, and then you, the teacher, you have the right to say, I didn't teach the guy. I don't even know him. Wow. He didn't learn from me. I don't know that guy. Not my problem, right? He's terrible. Not my fault. And the reverse of that is you're the teacher and I'm a student, just a normal student. And I, and I go out there and I'm great. I, I show off my kung fu. I get into a fight. I kick someone's ass. And I'm the best thing that anybody's ever seen. I'm so good. I'm a genius, right? I learned from you for 10 years. And I'm so good. And I go out there and I kill everybody. I just take them all down. And everybody says, wow. You know, wow, wow, that person has kung fu. He's incredible. Look how skilled he is. And say, who did you learn from? Say, I didn't learn from anybody. I created it myself. Wow. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm a genius. I just went up to the mountain. I meditated. I was visited by a cosmic a praying mantis and a cosmic snake and a dragon and they all talked to me and told me how to make kung fu and here it is I made it it's amazing alright wow. and, and, and so you're just this amazing genius you don't have to give credit to anybody but yourself and that's because you're a public student you have no obligations right nobody can claim you now if you're a disciple now you're my teacher but you're my shirful and I'm your tudi 
and 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 I'm horrible. My gongfu is like is like the worst smelling old leftover food you can imagine. It's so bad. And I go out there and I test it against somebody or I demonstrate it and it's like everybody just wants to vomit. It's so bad. And they say, "Who did you learn from? You are so bad." You say, "Well, I learned from this guy. He's my shurfu. I learned from I learned from Iftah." <laughs> and and well, and, thank and you. Look what he taught me. It's 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 Iftah's fault. <laughs> He's so bad. He taught me this. It's not my fault, right? He's so bad. He taught me this and told me it was good. It's so bad. It's his fault. Please don't blame me. And then everybody turns to the shurfu and say, "Oh, you're horrible. Look at the terrible student you produced." On the other hand, you're my shurfu. And I'm your 2D and I go out there and I'm absolutely unbelievably good, right? And everybody's incredibly impressed. And they say, oh my God, you are so good. Who is your shurfu? And I say, my shurfu is Iftah, right? He's really good. So the difference is for the normal student, I mean, for the normal student and normal teacher, the student can go out there, be bad or be good, right? And none of it goes back to the teacher. They don't have to admit that the teacher taught them, Right? They don't have to give credit to the teacher. And if they're terrible, the teacher cannot be blamed. If they are a disciple of that teacher, if they're very good, the teacher will get the credit for it. And if they're very bad, the teacher will suffer the blame. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Right. So, so basically, in the old days, in the old days, like if, if, if I'm a teacher and you come to me and say, I want to buy sure, which means I want to become a tudi, I want to become an apprentice, please take me as your apprentice. And I look at you and if I think you're a complete idiot then I will refuse you. I say, no, you're just too stupid. I am not going to teach you at all. I don't like you. Why? Because I'm worried you're not going to be very good later and then it's going to reflect on me. If they look at you and you're strong as, a, you're strong as an ox and you're smart, they say, well, maybe they say, well, I'm going to take you because later you're going to practice hard. You're going to be really good and then everybody's going to think I'm good. The, the basic premise here is the, the third point of important points in the Chinese language is you have guanxi, which means relationship. You have diwei, which means position. And then you have mianza, which means face, right? And when they talk about face, it's like they talk about face and losing face, if you've ever heard that term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. That's a, a big component in the society, which basically means if, if you are shamed or embarrassed, then you don't have a face to show to people. You have to hide your face because you're so embarrassed. So teachers want face, Meaning they want the student to make them look good. They don't want the student to make them, uh, you know, scared to show their face. So therefore, they try to take the people who are halfway decent or have potential to be decent and take them as disciples instead of the idiots who think they think they're never going to become any good. But that's the thing. So public, you don't have to give any credit back and you don't have to give and no blame can go back either. But private, meaning disciple, the blame can go back and so can the credit. So I hope yeah, that that's your yeah, wow. And and if if you can continue in like the same idea or maybe I think it's it's the the obvious next step you as a as a westerner and the teachers in the west and studied in China how do you see how you see yourself as a bridge between the cultures there's things that you said okay I don't want to take this but I want to take that uh, where how how are you as an instructor as a teacher uh, uh, see yourself bringing the the gongfu or the or Chinese culture in To your students or disciples I, I don't know if you receive disciples the same system where where is the connection or the non the disconnection between the two cultures is it necessary to bring the Chinese culture to the arts or right so the idea of you know whether or not one is a bridge of cultures and how much they want to bring back I mean it's it's an interesting question okay let me first say that it here in the West and probably in Israel there's a lot of 
fascination with Chinese culture as being foreign and exotic. Okay, it's it's not well understood. Um, most people's uh, perception of it is full of sort of mystical exotic bullshit. Pardon me for saying, but there's a lot of bullshit. And and so, you know, many many schools here would have teachers, you know, wearing Chinese clothes and talking about Chinese ideology and mysticism and all this kind of stuff. I would say about ninety nine percent of those schools are are, are are people who don't have a really deep knowledge of, of Chinese culture. You know, they're really putting on the appearance and the act um, and all that uh, sort of trying to represent the culture is, is usually the domain of people who, who them, they themselves are fascinated by it. It's a kind of orientalistic approach. Exactly. Um, it's a fascination, okay? And those who are fascinated by a culture are usually those who don't know so much about it because, it's, because then we say they're... essentially taking on the trappings of that culture, mm-hmm. the appearances, or whatever they can grab. Or in English, the say- saying would be low-hanging fruit, the easiest thing to grab, right? Whatever they can put on themselves that gets, brings them closer or makes them feel closer to that culture, they will, you know, appropriate that, that aspect, okay? Because it's a fascination. Now, myself, as you know, it's like we talked about, I'm an Asian studies major. I learned the language to a, to a functional degree. And then I learned the culture from my teacher in the U.S. and then in China, and then I lived in China. At this point, you know, my wife comes from Beijing. I have two kids that are half Chinese, and, and I have lived in China enough, enough that I don't have a fascination with it, okay? So I am, I am not even slightly fascinated with culture. I am what we, would, we could say I am facile with the culture, meaning I know it. You know, to us, I don't know everything, but I know enough. And I was there enough to get bored. <laughs> you know, so wow. it's, it's like I just was within it. And, and the other thing is, I can say, and, and this was true when I was there too, I, know, I knew a lot of people then, and I still know a fair number of people. When they go to China, you know, they may not have the language skills. They may not have the cultural understanding. And I mean, there used to be, you'd go to China and you'd meet foreigners there. non-Chinese, who basically went to China and stayed at, you know, the Sheraton or the Hilton, right? They, they, they go there and they want to have an experience in China and they're staying at like this very expensive hotel in the Western tourist district of Beijing or wherever, whatever town they're staying in. Yeah. Um, and then they go home and they had a great Chinese experience. They bought some things to bring home, but they really didn't see anything. There's a lot of people who go there even for a fairly decent length of time. But they still stay in some neighborhood like that. They, they, since they don't know the language, they're more comfortable staying in a neighborhood where there's a lot of foreigners. And those neighborhoods that have a lot of foreigners also have a lot of uh, – the businesses will all cater to foreigners. Yeah. So there'll be a lot of signs in English. There'll be a lot of uh, you know, stores that sell things that foreigners like and where it's very convenient. You know? Yeah. Um, That's very similar uh, to my experience. Uh, I lived in Okinawa where many American bases you know reside. so yes, some of the soldiers or uh, military men did try to to understand the culture and where they're at, but most just uh, stayed at base and could be three right. years in Okinawa and know nothing about it. Um, right. They, they, they just hold on to the convenience. Yep. And, and, and so when I went to China, um, when I was living there, In fact, it, it happened that way from the very first time. And I didn't even know the, the first time I went to China was 1999. And I really didn't have – it's like it's, I really didn't know what I was doing at that time. 
I had sort of a semi-functional Chinese skill, you know, like a year, year and a half of Chinese language. But I was lucky. My teacher had come from Beijing, and she taught me this. Her accent was very good, and and uh, and I, like I said, I was a musician, so I had a very good ear. Mm. So I, I had a limited Chinese, but a very good accent, even with one year. Um, but I had no other landmark. I didn't know anything about Beijing or where I was going. And so when I got off the plane, I had no idea where to go, which is a quite a crazy feeling, right? To, to, to travel to the other side of the world and get off the plane in a communist country with no idea where to go. And I got off the plane and tried to find the, the proper bus from the airport that takes you basically into town. And, and I'm riding that bus and, and, uh, and, uh, this guy who's like sitting nearby on the bus, I was the only foreigner on the bus. And just, he just looks over to me and starts trying to talk to me. And of course, you know, he, he's trying to speak English, right? Trying to practice his English with me. And I start speaking Chinese with them a little bit. They're very surprised that I can speak. And, and then, so I'm having this discussion with this guy on the bus in Chinese and the whole bus is watching. Every single person on the bus turned around and they're like crowding around listening to the conversation. And, and the guy, the guy is, is asking me, um, you know, uh, where am I going? You know, what am I doing? And I'm starting to get worried because I'm like, oh, I don't know why this guy's asking me where I'm going. Is he going to follow me home and rob, you know, because that happens to people. You don't, you know, you're in a foreign country. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, I didn't tell him where I was going. I, I didn't even know. But even if I did, I wouldn't have told him. And he's like, do you have a place to stay? I'm like, uh, 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 maybe, uh, yes, I don't know. No. Right. And, and he says, look, I'm going to show you a place. I have a great place for you. And I'm thinking, all right, this guy's trying to, you know, he wants to sell me something, you know, he wants to take me somewhere. But, but where did I have to go? What did I have to lose? So I just went along with him. And he was a really friendly, nice guy. And I was kind of innocent. I said, well, what the hell? And, and I went along with him. He says, I know this great place. It's a small hotel. I'm going to take you there. And I know these people. It's a good hotel. And, you know, I had this voice in my head saying, you know, watch out. Don't go with this guy. Where are you going? <laughs> but what could I do? I was whatever, 27 or what it was. And I was like, okay, whatever. And uh, we got off the bus in nowheresville as far as i could see it was just dusty you know little set gray section of town there was nothing special there Aww. and he's like follow me follow me we're going down this alley follow me so i start following him down this little alley in the middle and i'm like oh boy this doesn't look good at all we went further and further down this alley and i thought okay here's the point where here's where they chop my head off and make a soup out of it and that didn't happen but he goes here here's the hotel right here and i was like oh my god this guy was serious he really has a hotel for me so he took me to this hotel just all, all this big old red building and the hotel was called Dian. Huachiaofandian means means overseas Chinese hotel, okay? And it turns out this, I mean, this was not the Sheraton. It was very small. And this hotel was a famous hotel that communist dignitaries used to stay in. So Zhou Enlai stayed there, maybe Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong. They'd all stayed there. It was like they had conferences there and stayed there. So it was like this celebrated famous hotel, but it was really small and it was in a tiny alley. So I went and he's like, here, I'll get you a room. He helped you get me a room. You know, he helped me get me a room. And I stayed there. And the place was small. It was a really nice, beautiful old old hotel. But it wasn't huge. And it wasn't the Sheraton. And it wasn't westernized at all. And that neighborhood had no foreigners whatsoever. And that was just my luck. In the very beginning, there was nobody there. So it, from the very beginning, I would walk out the door of that hotel, walk down the alley, get breakfast through a shop that sold like these, uh, you know, like vegetable and meat pancakes out of the window, <laughs> right? And practice my Chinese. And, and that was my life there, you know, when I was traveling. And then later when I moved to Beijing, I got an apartment. There were no foreigners around. 
Um, and then I moved later, I moved closer to a neighborhood that was in my Shurfus neighborhood, my teacher's neighborhood, was right around the corner from him. And there were literally no foreigners at all to see within like three miles. There was nobody there. No foreigners at all. So I was in a really natively Chinese neighborhood for most of my time in China. I only spoke Chinese. I only ate the local food. You know, I didn't stay at a big hotel. I didn't go to shopping centers. I just stayed away from the universities and the, and the, and the tourist stuff. Um, so now how did I get onto the subject? That's what I was telling you. Now I'm getting lost. We're talking about the bridge, the cultural right. bridge, you as an instructor. Okay. So thank you. That's helpful. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'm tired too. I taught, I don't know, five hours today. Oh, wow. So... Uh, uh, so for me, living in China was really like living as a native. Now, of course, I'm not Chinese, but I had to learn a lot of stuff to be able to swim in those waters, you know, um, to be always speaking Chinese, eating the local food and talking, you know, the friends I had were like the taxi drivers and the local people. And I just wasn't, you know, like a foreign student who was taken care of by a university. I didn't stay in the Sheraton. I didn't hang out with foreigners. Um, I just made my own way and all I did was practice Kung Fu. And so the people I knew that I related to were in that Kung Fu scene, which tends to be a pretty, in those days, tended to be a pretty working class scene. It wasn't like rich business people. And so, you know, my, my life in China was very down to earth. You know, I, I spent a lot of time with my teacher. I trained at his house, you know, in the courtyard or in the hallway, in the elevator hallway. I had dinner at his house all the time. Um, I went everywhere with him. Uh, I just kept to my own neighborhood and, you know, I wasn't hanging around with foreigners. So my experiences and, and the fact that, you know, I mean, I used to, you know, I was always, we always went out to dinner with me and my teacher and everything. And, and you know, I was with my girlfriend's family otherwise and, and, uh, and being able to, you know, going out to dinner with my teacher and eating at their house. I mean, there was a lot of joking and talking and, and conversing in Chinese. And, you know, I was one of the very few foreigners there if if the only one at many times and and I could speak well enough to you know make jokes and 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 talk about slightly more complex subjects and just sort of blend in as as one of the crowd at that time of course they still saw me as a foreigner and and they're sort of um there's it's very nationalist in China's always been very nationalist you know sort of xenophobic but if you've been there long enough and you speak the language you know pretty well and 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 you don't have any unusual demands if you can kind of blend in where you can accept what the Chinese accept, well, then maybe you become less unusual to them and they become less unusual to you, right? I mean, I used to go out with my teacher and he's forcing me to eat all the most disgusting foods. And and that was the way it was. He was my shurfu. He said, eat it, I have to eat it. So, you know, I, we had a lot of old stories. I mean, you know, can can I can I get a little bit lewd here on your podcast? Uh, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, sure, sure. So so that was the big joke when I when I came back from China and, and when I was I used to post on the internet from China, and it was like, you know, I, I would write that basically, you know, I, I, at this point, you know, after living in China, you know, I finally learned how to eat dick. <laughs> because, because he made me eat sheep dicks. We used, to go, we used to go out to eat, and he'd like order a hot pot, and be all, be all sheep dicks. Oh, my God. Because they eat everything, right? So you're eating the sheep dicks, you're eating the, 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 the bull balls, right? Or the pig balls or whatever it is, the testicles, yeah. right? Yeah. You're eating, you, and then the intestine, right? Or, and and maybe you're going to eat pig brains, or or maybe you're going to eat, uh, uh, 
you know, kidney or liver or chicken and how, parts. And how the sheep dicks project on your uh, students here in, in, not here in Boston, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, it was just a big joke, you know? Of course, the, 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 my teacher, he liked to play those jokes on me too. So back in those days, you'd be out eating and drinking. Of course, they're making you drink the hard liquor, you know, cups and cups of hard liquor. You're getting drunk and, and uh, you know, having a big meal after a day of training and you have a hot pot and they dump something in the hot pot. He says, Oh, you need to eat this. You sure, 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 eat this, right? Eat this, try it, try it. I'm like, well, what is this thing? What do you want me to eat? What is it you want me to eat? He said, So this is called, he's like, this, this is called bianza. Bianza is like, it's like sort of, it's like uh, saying like it's a whip. It's like a, that's like a nickname for it. It's called like a whip. This is called a whip. Eat this. This is whips. It's very good. Okay. I said, okay, fine, fine, fine. I don't, he's like, but I'm like, but what is it? He said, Bianza, you have to eat it. Try it. So I eat. I'm like, oh, that's not bad. It's a little rubbery. What is it? He says, well, it's sheep dick. And then they all laugh at me. You know? <laughs> it's a big joke. <laughs> Finally, you ate dick, you know? Um, you know, one of, one of my Gunfu brothers took me to dinner at his house. And, you know, we had a big meal. And he's like, oh, this is, eat, we got something special for you. This is really good. It makes you really strong. It's called Yangbao. You eat it. I'm like, Yangbao? What's Yangbao? Right? And, and, and that's a name which doesn't really, it doesn't have a specific, it doesn't refer to what it actually is. It's yangba, what's Yangba? Oh, just eat it, just eat it, try it, you'll like it. It's really, it's healthy, it'll make you really strong, give you energy. So I ate them, I don't, I don't know if I like that too much. It turns out, of course, that's the testicles, right? I'm like, wow, I just ate testicles, you know? Uh, but, but of course, according to them, you know, the testicles probably like, you know, full of life force, right? And hormones yeah, supposed makes... to keep you, make you strong, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe make you more masculine, who knows? Yeah. But uh, so, so that, you know, I lived the local situation really. And, and, it, and it wasn't, you know, plenty of people, they could have a similar experience, but if they don't know the language and they don't really know the, the cultural nuance, well, they might, the teacher or whoever might treat them to some sort of exotic experiences, but they can't discuss it and they don't understand really what's behind it. And, you know, maybe they don't know how to go deeper uh, into the culture in terms of cultivating guanxi cultivating relationships because they don't know how to give face they don't know how to you know get face give face create relationships they don't know how to do that stuff without language and cultural nuance you just can't do that and and when you can't you you can have a fun time and you can have a good experience and you might even learn a bit of kung fu right but you can't go very deep you're limited it's like they say a glass ceiling because the chinese always know that you don't understand and therefore there's certain things they're not going to risk certain things they're not going to talk about with you certain things they're not going to show you because they see you as an outsider and they fear that you will judge them, you will criticize them, and you, or you will be offended. And they simply will not take you that deep. Mm -hmm. So um, my situation was that I went very deep into a family kung fu environment. And as a result, a lot of what other people think is fascination to me is like, is like I usually say it like, have, you, have either of you seen the old movie, The Wizard of Oz? Yeah, yes. Okay, so you know the the wizard is this amazing you know creature, right? And they just want to see the wizard who's going to solve all their problems, right? Yeah, yeah. And when they finally, the first time they get to see the wizard, he's like, you know, he, he threatens to destroy them, right? And and scares the crap out of them. And then he, he's going to help them with their problems, but of course he scares the crap out of them. And finally, when he doesn't solve their problems, you know, they're so mad that one of them goes and peeks behind the curtain, right? And then they see they see like a big machine and there's a stupid little guy operating a machine that's making this fake projection of the wizard, right? So it's like that. So I, I am a guy, not the only one, but I'm one of those people who's peeked behind the curtain. I've seen behind the curtain. So in front of the curtain, you have all this 
history, mythology, mysticism, stories, exotic stuff, right? Visually thrilling things that we don't have in the West, very foreign culture and customs. Mm -hmm. But if you look behind the curtain, then you see really the raw humanity of it, okay? And you'll see that you know some of these things that they promote to the outside, they're not true. You know, some things are true, some things aren't true, or, or some things that you didn't understand why they were the way they are, that you can look behind the curtain and then you understand culturally why this social mechanism is operating the way it is. And once you've seen behind a lot of the curtain, I mean, you're no longer all that impressed. You're sort of like, oh, this is how that works and this is how that works. And yeah, it's sort of, you know, it's earth. It's human life on earth. It's not magical. It's not amazing it's human life on earth and it's a different culture but since i understand it and i speak the language well i'm not shocked and i'm not surprised i'm not you know incredibly excited i may like it or dislike it whatever aspect of it but i don't i'm not you know totally freaked out or thrilled over it no big deal it's i i understand it to some degree right so so that's where i'm at okay and because that's how i see things uh when i came back to to the us when i started teaching I did want to preserve the things that I felt were positive about my experiences and the ones that I felt were negative and I can let them go. Or not just negative, but more like... Inappropriate. Maybe inappropriate or in some cases it's like, I don't need, I'm not trying to be a cultural ambassador. It's not my job to come back and teach Westerners how to be Chinese because they're not Chinese and they're not going to be Chinese. And, and I think that teaching Westerners how to be Chinese, okay, I'm going to take a break here and explain something. In, in my view, this is one of the, the ills, the sicknesses of the martial arts world in general, or at least the Chinese martial arts world, is I think a lot of students in the West come to martial arts like Tai Chi Chen with, with the belief, the hope, and the idea that that martial art is going to solve their identity problems. You have people out there who either do not know who they are, do not know where they're going, or don't like where they're going or who they are. And and they want a new a new me. They want to create a new me or 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 any me at all. They want an identity, okay? They feel uh socially powerless, they feel weak or they feel like they're not an admirable person. They're not a person that's cool. They want other people to think they're interesting and they don't think they're interesting. And in some cases, it's worse than that. In some cases, it's like, you know, they didn't have a good relationship with their father and they want somebody to replace that. And so they come looking for Kung Fu or Tai Chi Chuan uh, with the idea that they, they want somebody, you know, to give them an identity, right? To make them into somebody that's cool or make them into somebody that other people will respect. And so... They'll they'll sort of, they'll come to you as a teacher with these emotional needs, okay, and and there's a lot of people in the West. It doesn't have to even be kung fu. It doesn't have to be tai chi. It could be anything. But if we compare it the, culturally to China, at least the United States, if we compare it to culture to the society in China, Westerners are from a very young age encouraged to develop themselves individually as people, right? Ever you know. When we were in high school, I mean, everybody's trying so hard to be cool, right? To be like the cool guy who everybody likes. Well, I'm not saying that doesn't happen in China, but in general, in China, I mean, it is a much more collectivist society. So there's much more conformity and it's much more of a spirit of following the group, okay? And people are not necessarily encouraged to be individuals. They are encouraged to follow appropriately. 
Okay, mm-hmm. this is not. I'm not trying to make an absolute statement, but in a general way, in the U.S., we're not encouraged to follow at all. We're all encouraged. Look how cool I am, right? Look at me. Look what I did. In China, it's like don't make don't make noise, don't rock the boat, fit in, go along, and find your place in society. You know, it's it's a bit different. I know it sounds like a general a generalist kind of statement, but there's a truth to it. As a result, in the West, I mean, if you if you sort of fail at that in making yourself great as an individual, you're going to look for some way to fill that gap. And so people look to things like Taishan and Chinese martial arts and say, well, I can go do this. And then, you know, look at this magical thing I'm doing. It's amazing. Now everybody's going to respect me. Look, I do this very special thing called Kung Fu, right? Or this very mystical, you know, exotic, esoteric thing called Taishan. And so they come to you looking for that kind of identity, okay? You want to say something? Yeah, if that's one, like you, you showed that point of, of showing an exotic culture, but from your talk so far, uh, I, I came to understand that a lot of your, uh, your easy entrance to the, Japanese, to the Chinese society was thanks to your Chinese teacher in, in the United States. You think as an intru- instructor, like if one of your students would like to go to China, part of the introduction or like I said, an easy path to enter the Chinese culture in order to proceed their practice, you, you see it as a part of your responsibility or? So, so okay, I'm going to address that in a minute. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so, so let me, I'll finish my thought here and then I'll address that. And okay. so, so what I'm saying is you have these people who come to you looking for identity and the fascination with with Chinese color culture, the exotic fascination with it, is what attracts those kind of students who are looking for a fake identity to supplant their own that they don't feel comfortable with. All right. So if I was if I'm if I'm selling that kind of fascination, right, that exotic idea, then those students who want an exotic identity that's very thrilling, they will they will be attracted. That will be great for them. Okay. Generally speaking, that exotic stuff will you, will, you, will you sell the culture, right? If you're a cultural ambassador, teaching people to be Chinese, making them think that they can be like Chinese, that serves the needs of those students who have this emotional need for a new identity. For me personally, I don't want to attract those kind of students. And I don't, and, and, and it's, it's like that, that's like selling something to people. It's like selling, selling identity to people. In fact, you can't, you know, become Chinese. You can't do any of that. You can learn the language, do the hard work, learn the culture, take the bitter of that, like, like Chinese people do. <laughs> and then, because it is, there's bitterness just in the culture. Uh, you can learn those things. And then, then you could have some quality of identity, I suppose, if that's what you're looking for. Um, so I don't feel, not only I feel it's not my responsibility to, to teach people how to be Chinese, right? Or about, I'm not trying to teach them about China, okay? Not only is it not my responsibility, but I think if I did that, it would have a negative effect mm. because it would lead people on to some kind of fake belief system, which I don't want to do. Mm. So what I do is um, I teach Kung Fu and then I teach the cultural aspects that are related and necessary for learning Kung Fu. Mm, yeah okay which are different yeah. which are a bit a bit different yeah, now, yeah definitely. Will, will this prepare them to go to china and learn if they want it yeah it kind of would but they still would need the language mm-hmm. yeah right but i i do give them some preparation for that but okay. it's more oh. that there are elements of of training and 
elements of mind control, meaning self-control of one's own mind and your outlook on life that, that are uniquely Chinese, which are very much how and why something like Kung Fu even exists. So, for example, Chinese Kung Fu has particular methods of, and approaches towards practice, which you know, is often done best by Chinese people because they have the mindset to, to take it, right? I mean, Chinese, for example, um, the culture can be quite harsh. It's changing now, but I mean, it used to be very strict. The parents are very strict with their kids, and it's very hierarchical and disciplinarian. And, you know, if your parents tell you to do something, you do not argue, right? And, and even now, I mean, it's like if, if you're a, a young man, if you're a boy, a young man, if your, your mother tells you they, they want you to marry somebody, or let's say you're a young man, you have a girlfriend, you, you, you really like this girl, and you want to marry her, and your mother doesn't like her. They'll say, no, you can't marry her. Good luck arguing. Uh, wow. So they have television shows, like reality shows in China about this subject right now. Wow. They have shows where people are – relationship shows where they have people going on there and, you know – this guy isn't loves this girl, but his mother hates the girl and says he can't marry her. And then they have a big group discussion and a big reality show about, you know, should the guy marry the girl or should he listen to his mother? You know, it usually ends up with he listens to his mother. Wow. The mother gets to tell him, no, you don't get to marry that person. Parents, the authority of parents is nearly absolute. At least it was. And, and, and that's just the way the culture is. So... It's like if, if you've grown up that way, then when it comes to your teacher or your shurfu, if they tell you practice this way and take the pain, it's very common that, you know, if I teach some Westerners, some Westerners, okay, the ones who aren't prepared, if I say, hey, you know, they come to learn from me, I say, okay, do this. They say, well, it hurts too much. I can't do it. I say, yes, you can. Okay. No, no, I can't. It's at my limit. I can't do it. It hurts too much. I say, yes, you can. And you will. Watch this, and you force them to do it. Well, they really can do it. As a teacher of 20-something years, I know a lot better than them what they're capable of if they're a beginner student. They have no idea what they're, what they're getting into when they learn from me. <laughs> but that's the, tr that's the truth. They, most people don't. But uh, many Westerners, if I was to say, hey, you, you do this, and it hurts a lot, they can say, I can't take it. I can't take it. That's all I can do. You'd say, no, it's not. And say, yes, it is. That's all I can do. And then they're going to quit because they don't have the mental fortitude they haven't been conditioned socially to accept authority in that way, right? The, you know, I have, I have Chinese students, if I said, you know, do this, right? I want you to do it until you vomit. You know, do it until it hurts so bad you vomit. They would. They'd do it until they fell down. They'd do it until they vomit. Wow. They'd do it until they couldn't walk the next day, right? That's what old school Kung Fu training is like. But some of the Western students who aren't prepared – I'll say, do this until you vomit. They say, wow, that's, uh, that's abusive. I'm out of here. You know? You're a horrible, abusive person. I'm leaving. I'm going to find somebody who's not such an asshole. You know? And that's the truth. Now, th this is another reason I'm very selective with my students. I mean, I, I only teach people who I think are willing to do it. Right? If you're not going to listen to me, then <laughs> how can I teach you? Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and I, I think this is no different for an art like Goju-ryu, right? Yep. You study Goju-ryu, right? Yeah, yeah. So Goju-ryu is a hard knocks art, right? Yep. You see, you see them carrying those heavy vases and conditioning their arms and everything? I did you, that. You, I you do that. Those, <laughs> yeah, well, some, some of those uh, Westerners are not going to take it. They're like, this is abusive, you know? Yep. I don't think th those Japanese students of the Goju-ryu teachers are arguing with their teachers and saying, but my fingers hurt. <laughs> no, they're yeah. not, right? Um 
And so obviously I have Westerners who are willing to do this, but there's also a large number that aren't, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, and, and everything within reason. I mean, I have older students too, so, so they, they don't necessarily have to take that same kind of abuse. You know, they, yeah, of course. There's, everything has to be age appropriate and, and related to one's Health, bodily yeah. uh, condition and everything. But still, it's more just about surpassing what you think are your limits. Because of course, as a beginner student of, of Kung Fu, you, don't, you think your limits are very low. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. Well, the whole point of learning Kung Fu is to uh, uh, gain the ability to, yes, to do what was formerly beyond your limits. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then later on, your skill is beyond the limits of a normal person. And that's Kung Fu. Mm. Right. So, yeah. so there are, there are qu- qualities of the Chinese culture which are necessary for that training process. Okay, so I do teach those, but I don't teach I don't teach cultural fascination. Mm. That's, that's, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, for me too. It really make, makes me think about uh, yeah yeah <laughs> how I yeah. teach in my dojo, like and yeah. the connection to culture. Well, this concludes the second part of our interview. Please join us next time on the third part of the interview where we talk about Marin's seminar in Israel, as well as many other interesting topics. In the meanwhile, keep on training. For questions, requests, or any other reason, You can reach us on our Facebook page, No Wax Needed. Send us an email at node.wax.needed at gmail.com or post something in our homepage, nowaxneeded.wordpress.com. Feel free to share our stuff, as long as you remember to credit us.